Hey friend, you have made it to our last episode in season two of Mission Forward. And it's intentionally a bit of a different format. I hope this conversation, like others this season, get you thinking and get you acting. I know it sure did for me. Here's the backstory. A few weeks back, I reached out to a group of CEOs and business leaders, some of whom I know and some I had never previously met, with a very big request to join me and my friend Alex Orfinger in an honest, on-the-record, and uncomfortable conversation about the anti-racist commitments and statements we had each made in the last 12 months and how we were doing on progress against those commitments. The conversation came at an interesting moment, just days after the one-year anniversary of COVID-19 being declared a pandemic, and as hate crimes against the Asian American and Pacific Islander community, and in particular, hate crimes against Asian American seniors were intensifying. I will note that the conversation was recorded just hours before a gunman killed eight people, including six Asian American women in Atlanta, Georgia. The hours and days that followed this conversation were hard to process, but I feel blessed to have spent this time in the company of such insightful, honest, and human-centered leaders. This is how I framed our conversation. That we have each carried a unique responsibility during this time to care for the health of our employees while managing and protecting the health of our businesses. The intertwined nature of our events from the past year have meant that we must consider the culture of business differently. We must think about the weight of the world's events on our teams as perhaps we hadn't done before. This was an actionable conversation, but not a comfortable one. As I hoped we would all agree, and we did, it is not comfortable to be called to grow, to stretch beyond the habits and the tendencies that we have each become complacent with. It's not comfortable to go beyond ourselves, but I appreciated their willingness to come into this space with me for self-examination and for accountability, but also to think about how businesses like ours can contribute to more inclusive and equitable workplaces. The call to have this conversation and whatever may follow has become even more pronounced for me in the past year as someone who is white to see how easy it can be to retreat to places that are comfortable, to ignore the injustices that are happening in the world and to allow those injustices to continue. And so here we are to think about where we are, where our sectors are and where we must go to ensure that the racial reckoning so many business leaders are having is not a fleeting moment, but the digging in to a movement for justice. The voices that you'll hear in this conversation are many, so let me tell you quickly who they are. David Simnick, the CEO and co-founder at Soapbox Soaps. Lydia Soto-Harman, the CEO of Girl Scout Nations Capital. Karen Warzazik, the principal at SBSB LLC and a financial planning strategist. Raj Agrawal, president of Provoke. Tim Wang, the founder and principal of TDW & Co. Elizabeth Yan, the head of business development for 1623 Capital. Michael Aiken, president of Link Strategic Partners. Frederick Irwin, the founder and CEO of Her Corner. Alex Orfinger, the publisher, the Washington Business Journal, and me, Carrie Fox, the CEO of Mission Partners. There was so much on the minds of this group, and we had just an hour to dig into some of it. So let's get to it. 
I lead very much my business and through my life through my heart. And I often feel as if I'm called into these moments to convene people for a certain conversation, but I am not the equity building expert. I simply know that, um, <laughs> Michael, you and I were reflecting recently on the space that we were in and feeling like there was so much missing from that space that I just simply wanted to put a uh, put a call out to the world and see what came back. And so this is very much a let's see what comes out of this and where it goes next. Um, I'm going to share with you all a really brief poem and that I heard recently and that made a big impact on me. And then we'll get into the open questions here. Um, and what I'm going to share is from a woman named Mickey Scott Bay Jones. She's the director of healing and resilience initiatives um, with the, the Southern-based collective called Faith Matters Network. Together, we will create brave space because there is no such thing as a safe space. We exist in the real world. We all carry scars and we all have caused wounds. In this space, we seek to turn down the volume of the outside world. We amplify voices that fight to be heard elsewhere. We call each other to more truth and love. We have the right to start somewhere and continue to grow. We have the responsibility to examine what we think we know. We will not be perfect. This space will not be perfect. It will not always be what we wish it to be. But it will be our brave space together. And we will work on it side by side. We've got a little time. As I mentioned, we won't get to all of these questions. They are far too big and far too uh, to deep to dig into, but I'm going to start us first, and I'll just open it. We will hear from a couple folks on each question, and then stay where we need to stay based on that conversation. But as we're getting into this, if there's anything that you'd like to share about what you, as a leader, have changed about your own leadership style in the last year, are there certain places that you found yourself stepping up or stepping back, or moving up or moving back? Um, and if you think about those changes that you made how and what they might mean for the future of your organization. So there's a few different thought starters there, and I'll just pause and see if anyone wants to take any pieces of that to get us started. The poem you just shared about Brave Space is such a powerful poem. We reflect on it a lot in our client work. The idea of safe space still gives me the ability to tell someone else to save his space. It confers an authority. And how's that my right? A brave space says this may or may not be a safe space. This may or may not be a comfortable space, but it's going to be a brave space and we're going to create that together. That's Even that is a very different framing of these dialogues. So I've been reflecting a lot on my role of stepping back and speaking less and listening and creating pathways for leadership that can really help us learn and expand. Yeah, I'll kind of add to that. It's interesting. Um, I think over the past year, I uh, felt like I could speak up a bit more intentionally around, you know, for example, it, it's always been a little bit terrifying to say, hey, I think we're as a firm too white and all the pictures are white, all the things, you know, all the collateral only speak to me um, or white men. And I was really, so the, the other side of my being in the world is around poverty alleviation and Carrie knows me well in this work. And, and that puts me in rooms exactly the opposite of the one I live in professionally. 
And so I've always had this tension of trying to bring these two worlds together in some way. And I felt like this was my moment to speak up about an idea and really host in this example, host an internship program, a work-study program with a, a really challenged school that's doing a great job in, in kind of growing the next generation of, it's mostly Latina, Latino, Latina, and African-American, and giving them an opportunity through a scholarship with our firm but really to come work and network and meet and be be part of, um, you know, something that could be a future academic track for these individuals. Um, and finally felt brave enough to say that's really where we need to be going and developing a pipeline and kind of flipping the, the script on our business. And that that was that's been successful. We actually got the bo- the board voted and, and approved the idea, and we've had liftoff. And I think if you back up the clock, pre racial tension, pre political tension, pre pandemic, um, I've always probably teetered on vocalizing some of these things. But I felt very brave, and I thought, you know. If I don't speak up now and if I continue to just do this on my own outside of this really big captive audience that is my professional space, I'm not going to be as effective. I'm not going to be able to make, see the change in my industry that I'd love to see. Um, I think it's the answer to kind of closing some of the wealth gap issues. And so I, I felt very proud that, you know, as a, as a firm, I was part of that movement to think about how we change internally and did that through a variety of surveys through all the employees, a couple of different task force to really think through how we how we build out a more inclusive, uh, inclusive space for everybody. Um, and so but it but it felt uncomfortable, not going to lie, it felt very uncomfortable to um, and, and I know there, I remember seeing faces in that room and you can see they kind of fear about, oh gosh, what are we about to embark on, right? What are we getting in? Are we getting into a political fight right now, right? And, and I think as, as corporate America, we don't really want to go there necessarily sometimes. Um, but there is an intersection, right? This, this idea of policy capital and actual and private capital have a, have a role to play together. And so I, I've, I've honed in on this over the years and felt like this was the right moment in time to kind of speak up and really glad I did. Um, as uncomfortable as it was in the moment, <laughs> several moments, but we have liftoff and we've been hosting a student um, all year and it's been wonderful. So, Thanks, Karen. Tim, you want to add to that? Sure. Yeah. Um, I would say that... Um, I think just the context here in terms of pre-pandemic, I was on the road literally three weeks out of a month, traveling between all of our different office locations and spending physical time face-to-face with our team. I mean, we're a small agency. I mean, 30-some people spread out between four locations. You know, you started racking up a lot of those air miles. And then then the pandemic hit, and then we were all kind of, socially isolated and um the human interaction and the leadership style of being able to spend time together physically just completely changed into a virtual environment for all of us and you know i i think what's interesting about that is that as much as i got to know some of the team members by 
ideating with them, planning with them, strategizing with them, and spending that quality time together. Excuse my son. He's, he's a mouthful. He's five and a half. So I apologize, listeners. Um, but, uh, you know, being able to like have that quality time together, sharing a meal, breaking bread was somehow, you know, replaced with this kind of like techno technological kind of spending time together. But what was ironic about that was that you began to, uh, become invited into people's houses, into their homes, into their living rooms, into their workspaces that also acted as the kitchen or their bedrooms. And then you began to see like the life at home. And so as physically distant that we were apart, it was really interesting because I felt like we, you know, from a leadership style and being able to know your people, know your team, you began to understand the life that they live at home outside of the workspace. And so I think for me, in terms of just demonstrating, um, I think a certain level of empathy and understanding for, you see this person in the workspace, now you see them in the home space, and then how that kind of collectively combines into um, how we're able to collaborate and work together. And I think that was probably something that um, for me was really meaningful and, and, and it, it's helped to build a deeper connection, I think, um, with our team in that way. I'll add on to that and echo that. And um, as another one who's got little little ones at home, there's never an apology needed for a little voice. It's the best sound in the world. Um, for us, a very, very similar feeling of realizing how how much people are hurting and then to have to see that you know on on camera and in people's homes that there is only so much that I felt I could do as a business leader even though I tried to do everything I could in certain cases as a business leader that so many of the issues that our employees and our communities are facing are so deep uh, and so complex and so we've been taking this time over the past year to think about what is every single way we could alleviate the challenges that individuals are feeling. And yet we're, you know, David, as you said, we're even a smaller little microcosm in the world, much smaller than Soapbox. And yet I think about the collective of that, right? If every little microcosm of a business and some of you are significantly bigger, but the collective impact of all of that. And I'm, I'm curious if any of you have made specific adjustments to policies or procedures or benefits over this last year that that are designed to affect or address some of the, whether they be inequities or not, but some of the harms that individuals are feeling in the workplace. I mean, I can answer that. And, and so, so my organization has, um, I have about 112 employees. We have five offices, two in Maryland, two in Virginia, headquarters in DC and an office in, in West Virginia. And we had started, and I will say as, as the CEO, kicking and screaming a telework pilot in January of last year. And at the time, the departments that went um, on, the on the pilot were finance, HR, the cookie program, the product sales, and a membership department. Well, come March, it turned out that that was like the best decision that we could have made because they already were set up, you know, back then, I don't know if you remember, you couldn't even buy a laptop. 
because everybody was buying laptops to send people home. But we had, you know, a lot of us had lap- laptops. So we, we had that. And I, as I'm getting ready for our all staff, we are, you know, the telework policy is going to become permanent. Now, does that mean that everybody's going to be able to work from home full time? No, because we are an in-person organization. We need to connect. We need to be together. But as a as a leader, what it has I think for all of us, for anybody that I've talked to, it's taught us two things. One is that we could, there's so much that we do that we could do remotely and that will give us a better work family balance, whether, you know, you have kids or not. I mean, just not having the commutes that we all have in this, in this Washington DC we live in, having that eliminated has opened up all sorts of opportunities for us. So I think the real challenge as I talk to different folks is like, how do we take the things that have created an equity, because when everybody is the same on a virtual screen and everybody's name matters because you can put on that screen what your name is in large meetings or small meetings. And shy people have said to me, Zoom is like the best thing that has ever happened to me because I hate walking into a a room not knowing. Here, there is equality. Everybody is the same. How do we harness some of the positives that technology has provided us how do we make sure that our gatherings are, um, it's almost like they need to be more meaningful. You know, there's so much transactional business that we've all done uh, in person because we believe like if you're in person, if you're pitching something, if you are in person, you are more able to get that sale. Or if you're, you know, for me, it's a grant or what, like, or, or business meetings. Like how do we, how do we harness the gift and I, I mean that in quotations, that uh, that this new space we've had to work for in a year, how do we harness the good things about it? And don't revert back. As a leader, that's what I'm struggling. Revert back to the old ways of, of working because I think our employees don't want that. I know I don't want, I don't want to have to commute five days a week. That'll kill me. But so that's, I think that's the... Um, that's the tension that I find right now as we're all getting vaccinated and by end of summer, there will be more normalcy. How do we not as leaders revert back to what it was? Because it wasn't, I mean, I hear you, Tim, traveling three weeks out of the month. I mean, I was out three nights a week in DC. Like that, that, that can't be, I don't wanna wear high heels anymore. <laughs> How do I make sure that that doesn't happen? Any answers, I need answers. But none of us wanna go back to that, do we? No. Carrie, if I could just jump in. One of the things that, Lydia, just to follow up on what you said, um, one of the things that I've heard from business leaders everywhere is we can't go back to it because our employees are not going to accept going back to it. They're going to just have as a basic understanding that they're going to be able to work from home some amount of time. And we would never, if we go back to five days a week in the office, we'll never be able to attract another employee to our staff ever again. So I think that's one interesting piece of it. But the other thing, Tim, you know, the other side of what you said is this, I love this visiting into people's homes. I think, you know, I have an immediate intimacy with you because I hear your five and a half old son there, which is just great. Um, But also this, this window for me, and maybe it's because I was uh, in some way, insensitive to it um this when people came to the office you knew that you gave them that space safe space where no matter how crazy their world was in their home 
they came to the office and they could have those moments of quiet and peace and productivity. Now, all of a sudden, you see so much of or or you're or it's so much harder to hide that the challenges that people are going through with their children, with their family life, um, you know, whatever that is in their home that they can't keep apart from it. And uh, that's the part that I've had a, a higher level of sort of appreciation for that. You know, I need to give, give them a lot more space during the day because, you know, I know for one person on my staff from three to four 30, it's the witching hour with her two children. And she just can't, she just can't do any work during that time. And I'm okay with that. I would never have been okay with that as somebody that would just take 90 minutes off in the middle of the day if we were in the office. So, you know, it's this craziness of like, of, of, being in the the good thing about being in people's worlds, but also seeing all the other things that are affecting them. You know, what has happened, whatever was going on was going on before and we let it be okay. Why did we let it be okay? I do it because I need to be competitive and I need to show that I'm serious and that I'm a go-getter, you know, um, and I, uh, I just wonder what other lies I've told myself or what other things white supremacy has told me in order for me to be successful in this world and particularly in a place like DC. But we, um, we shifted to flexible work hours for all of our people. We knew that nine to five wasn't gonna work. We really pushed towards this thing that we've always wanted to do, which is really hard for me to do, which is focus on results, not on time uh, for a person that, you know, Probably works a lot like a lot of the people here. Somehow it's equated to time. That also might be some form of immigrant mentality. Uh, we reduced the number of meetings that we had with people. And then we also changed our staff meeting as a place for people to come together and to support one another versus it being, you know, these uh, all these agenda items that we would have. And then people could use their PTO as much as they wanted, whenever they wanted, uh, without, you know, with, um, you know, just whatever worked for them. And then we also uh, asked our people that were running projects and our project managers that they could figure out how they wanted to adjust their own projects based on whatever their own needs were for their projects. And then we created a place for these types of discussions because not everybody wants to talk about them all the time and how it impacts one person, particularly from a different social, cultural, or racial background is very different than what other people can. Like, you know, even when the murder of George Floyd happened, like, you know, not all the black people at our company wanted to engage in the conversation the way that I did and potentially other white people did uh, because they have a very different response to that specific experience. And the one thing that was my guiding question, because I was overwhelmed uh, at what was going on and uh, with what I shared about what our focus is as a company. And I kept on trying to ask myself this question, um, how can I be of most service at this time? how can I be of most service at this time? Um, and it was a really guiding question for me on making decisions. Um, and also it led to <clears throat> knowing that there were a lot of places where um, I felt like I had a lot more agency to do more things that I wanted to do out in the world versus what the world was telling me that I needed to do. Um, and that's resulted in some really interesting things that have been uh, transformative and um, have also received a lot of recognition that I don't know if I would have ever given myself the time or space to do as I was trying to keep up with the uh, Joneses. And as far as travel goes, nobody travels more than Michael Aiken. And I know he came off mute, so I'll give him the mic. 
<laughs> I lived on airplanes and now I don't know if my suit pants still fit. It's been quite a year. It's been a whole, a whole year. There's a couple things I'm reflecting on from what Alex and Raj shared. To, to Alex's point, I think yes and. So yes, I think work was that quiet space for a lot of people. And I think so many of us missed that. I also think that it was an unintentionally quiet space because sometimes people weren't encouraged or welcome or felt comfortable sharing, right? So as Raj has said, those pressures have always been there. What are we doing to lift those up and make sure that we maintain professional work environments for whatever that means, but we don't expect people to be completely different people in their workplace than they're not. There was... um a study. I think it was. I think it was Sherm that put it out. It was U.S. Census Bureau data, um, and I think the National Center for Health Statistics. And it said, in the month after the the airing of of George Floyd's murder, Black individuals experiencing anxiety and depression jumped forty one percent nationally. A forty one percent jump in anxiety and depression after that incident was televised. Now. The nation and the world was shocked by that. Did the nation and the world experience a 41% in anxiety and depression? Likely not. So in those moments where a Zoom environment requires all your team to be on, on camera for team building, maybe you don't want to be in camera for a certain moment of a certain day. And there are plenty of studies that show that being on camera raises anxiety and stress levels for certain populations at work more than others. Now, the challenge is you can't expect every boss or manager to know what those triggers are or know when people need that space. But we can, as leaders and managers, create environments where it's comfortable to say, I need to be off camera. I don't owe you an explanation for that. I just need to be off camera. And we've now got that understanding that that's okay. In, in a fully enlightened organization, you can say, I need to be off camera because of this. And I think some of our other colleagues do as well. So I think we're learning some lessons in this digital environment that we have to carry over to back when we're in person to just elevate some of those expectations in a way that are safe and brave and, and all those other words. Yeah. Thanks, Michael. I want to ask quickly, maybe just by a show of hands, how many of your organizations released statements last year or publicly condemned violence? I would love to know if some of you are willing to share how you're feeling against where your organization is against that statement that you made. Again, I'm not quite sure we got it quite right. But um, one of the things that I really, um, last June when I asked myself, you know, what, what in the world can we do? I was I was very particularly worried for women business owners, African-American business owners. They were, they're generally less funded, less access to money. They're being told they're more susceptible to the virus. They're emotionally dealing with just all of, all of the feelings after the murder of George Floyd. So I was, um, it was very, very concerning to me that as a, as a group that those businesses would fold more than other businesses owned by women and so as an organization, after kind of speaking out on this, we decided internally to create a number of grants for Black women business owners. And it was not competition-based, it was merit-based. If you were about to join a peer group or a private coaching or whatever it was that you needed, um, as you were going through the process, we would just say, are you interested? If so, it was just allocated. Um, and we... Where I think, where I've been told actually by some of my um, facilitators who are African-American that we got it wrong is that we didn't want to make it into kind of a, a press statement. We didn't want to tell the world, look at what we're doing. Like, aren't we great? Um, and so we specifically didn't tell anybody. We just did it. And 
the thing that I learned on the back end was that when you don't put these sorts of benefits out there, how can the women for whom they're intended find them? And I hadn't thought about that. (laughs) So of course we're a very small company. It's not like we were giving away hundred thousand of these things. Right. Um, but it was another kind of reminder of, you know, just the continuous learning of how you can do well, try to do well, and then keep learning on how to get it even more right the next time. So, um, today I'm, I'm personally very happy that we've made these choices that we've given these grants. I'm so thrilled by the women who have used them and the results that they've seen and feel like we have made just a tiny little impact in helping some of these businesses, not just survive, but thrive. Um, I wish we could do more. And I think that this is on me in many ways that I'm not often brave enough to go out to the community and say, Hey, I'm doing this. You want to put in 10 grants? You want to put in 10 grants? You want to put in 10 grants and just kind of make it more of a splash. Um, but that's, you know, that's something that I've always kind of struggled with. There's a reason it's not called Fred's corner (laughs) because, um, personality wise, that was never really kind of my, my jam, if you will. Thanks, Fred. Elizabeth, I'm going to toss to you next. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I'd like, I'd like to just add a thought here. It's not so much, um, personal experience or, or my organization directly, but just something that I had noticed when we think about last year and Carrie to your question about how have organizations come out against violence. And in particular, I think what that question is usually referring to is BLM and right, rightfully so. But I sitting in the seat that I do as an Asian American, my parents who are immigrants, I often think, well, that's not the only violence that's been perpetrated throughout the last year and even prior, right? And so I, to me, I always find it rather astounding for organizations that have spoken up for and against BLM or uh, you know for BLM, but then we're silent in other matters too. And I'm not only talking about you know the Asian American experience, but when you think about the Muslim ban that happened a few years ago, right? Like there's so many other intersections that I think we often. It, I don't have an answer. It's more of me just kind of asking myself, and as Raj mentioned before, like a reflection of where is my perspective and where is my organization's perspective and why do we have these inherent comfort zones where we, you know, are okay to speak out against, even if we don't directly identify and why not for others? David. Just building off Elizabeth's point, I think something that's really interesting is um, obviously we, we manage four brands that are all consumer facing. Um, We do a decent amount of B2B, uh, but predominantly when we make decisions for the brand, we're thinking of our consumers. There's been a ton of research uh, over the past couple of years coming from various different sources, reinforcing the idea that consumers are looking for brands to speak up and they're being rewarded. So, you know, there's a, there's a scale of this, right? Like, so uh, you can go full Ben and Jerry's, or like you have gone, you know, like everything that is an issue you're taking a stance on. Um, and not like that wasn't meant to be humorous. That's just to say that there is a, there are brands that, that want you to know 
that every major issue that comes up that speaks to their demographic that they're going to take a stance on. Um, and then I think a step removed from that is probably like Nike in a sense that, you know, they're not afraid to say what they are and what they aren't. Um, and a lot of their consumers reward them for that. Uh, and then I was, I was reading a wall street journal article a couple of days ago about, you know, black rifle coffee where that CEO is catering to an audience that, um, that very much wants a brand to speak for the values of a lot of the uh, men and women in the armed services that, that purchase from that brand. Um, but then also, you know, they have limits in terms of uh, there were a bunch of uh, photos of, of people um, storming the Capitol wearing, you know, black rifle coffee shirts or hats or whatever it might be. And that brand came out and said, look, we don't, we're not with these insurgents. Like this is not okay. Um, and yet there were even, you know, far, uh, right brands that basically were, were supporting those and seeing that this is an opportunity where this brand didn't go as far to back, um, you know, the most extreme elements of their consumer base. Therefore we're going to find an opportunity to, to run and go. So I think, I think, especially in the consumer side, just like how our politics are becoming more polarized, People are looking for brands to reinforce the way that they see the world. Um, and I know that, you know, the things that Soapbox has done uh, have upset people. When we put out, you know, we received a bunch of emails uh, from consumers that are like, I'm never going to buy your products ever again. And for us, we're like, okay, you know, there's, a, there's a big marketplace. And, you know, if you don't agree with these values, then our team definitely agrees with these values and we think it's the right thing to say and to stand up for. Uh, and I, and I think that not, I think that, uh, many businesses are seeing that the more that they take stands on issues that matter to their consumer, the more the consumer believes that that brand stands for what they want to be and the values that align with their purchases. And I think that one last note on this, that, that I find really, really fascinating is, um, consumers, I think, believe that they, they can change the world and how they spend their dollar. Uh, and that really is the premise of the, the parent company of all of our brands is called Impact Driven Brands. Uh, and we purposely keep that as quiet as humanly possible just because we don't want people realizing that all four of these brands and marketplace ladder up to one uh, organization. And as we launch new brands as well as acquire other brands, um, our, our whole intent is to try to make the world a more just place through consumerism. And, you know, we know consumerism is not going anywhere. Capitalism hopefully isn't going anywhere. Uh, but we do believe that we can offer a great service at an affordable price and, and or product at an affordable price that also helps someone who's not a part of the buyer or seller relationship. So uh, brands are rewarded for taking stance and we're seeing it more and more. And we're definitely going to continue to stand on our soapbox boom, to say what we believe in. Yeah, I was going to add to that just real quick because you kind of hit the nail on the head of some of the work that I've, I do specifically. And a lot of the data support exactly what you say. And even a company that is going to be sustainable and depend on a really thriving workforce to employ, they're, the, the next generation are raising their hand and saying, we don't want to work for a company. So I think it'll be harder even from a talent management perspective 
to not be in alignment with your corporate values and then all the way throughout. That's why I love the Benefit Corporation um, uh, kind of charter. And there's no other model that really lifts that throughout its verticals. And now you're seeing that um, not just on the consumer side, but you're seeing that in recruiting. Like, I I don't want to, you have this bad press about you. I don't want to be aligned with that. And that, you know, we're probably a generation or two where that kind of comes full, you know, you know, center. Um, But we're heading in the right direction, I think, in that way. And that's been, I think, the, the good thing that has come out of being very open about the tensions that everyone's experiencing in the past year. Yeah, Karen, I'm going to toss to Michael um, next, and then I'm going to move us to our last question. Thank you, Carrie. I'll make three quick points. We did not put out a statement. We pulled the team together. We had a long, long, long discussion over multiple days. And if we put out a statement and where our team landed is that the statement felt forced that if I, as the manager and the leader and the founder wanted to put out a statement, I should, and I should go on record with what my commitments were, but trying to align a company statement felt forced in a moment where forced was not what we were going for. And I'm glad my team guided us there. And I feel very confident in that decision. We advise a lot of nonprofits. We have a nonprofit who I won't name, but they're a national um, youth-serving nonprofit that did put out a statement. And they got a lot of feedback on their statement that it wasn't right. And they got that feedback from youth in their program. And so they put up a second statement and they got a lot of feedback that just including BLM as a hashtag, but not calling out that Black Lives Actually Matter is a cop-out. And so they put up a third statement and then they called us and said, do we take the other ones down? And we said, no, lean into the fact that you're a learning, evolving organization because there's power in that. And they did. And that's when they got it right. When they showed the flaws and they showed they listened to the folks that they're working with and they move forward. And I thought that was a really powerful example. And they're all still up. And then the third piece is that I do think there was power in some organizations, especially very large ones who've never been vocal on these issues before, in putting out statements. There was a panel I did with the Aspen Institute that was called Moving from the Performative to the Normative. And the entire point there was we need some of these folks on record in a performative way so that we can hold them accountable to move to the normative sense of this being real. And so if they're backing it up, I think that can be a helpful statement. Thanks. I just want to make sure that, you know, that wasn't Girl Scouts he was talking about. <laughs> it was not but, Girl Scouts. Because I'm the only serving <laughs> organization on the call. But I will say, Michael, to your point, there was a movement to go black a mm-hmm. certain day, which the grassroots was not in favor of. That was one of the big sort of like people were trying to feel their way into this. And, you know, it, it was it, it, it fell flat. It's like what we don't want to be silenced on the, on a particular day. Quite honestly, we want our voices to be heard. So it's interesting that you can as long as you're humble and you can learn from whatever you're doing is better. But thank you. Sorry. <laughs> I guess I know, Carrie, you want to move us forward, but... No, please keep going. There's a real issue with people feeling like they... Why Why do you need to say something? We had a work with a client as well, too, and we shared the statement with a few of our other clients. We helped to co-author that. And people were like, oh my God, you know, if we had worked with Provoke, we could have said something like this. And I'm like, no, you couldn't have. Because you haven't been on the deep work and the journey that allows you to show up in this authentic way. And then what ends up happening is that people are confused about, well, now I said this thing, now what do I do? Have you ever been in this in a relationship where you're like, oh my God, I wish I had said this thing. And then you say that thing and then it opens up a whole other can of worms. And I hate, you know, Alex, I know that you're in the publishing work and many of us are communicators, but it's not about what you say, you know, because it's going to open up a whole other can of worms. And if you're not ready for it, you're just going to get, it's just going to be a lot worse for you in the long run. 
And I, I wanted to ask David a question, which is, David, are, are you like Ben and Jerry's or are you somewhere different than Ben and Jerry's? And if you're not Ben and Jerry's, what's preventing you from being Ben and Jerry's? You know, for, for us, I want to try to bring as many people into the conversation as possible. And as, as I said, you know, when I was doing the introduction, I like being the, the ally that can go in places that my, my friends can't. And I, and I, you know, I've been in a lot of conversations where, um, when you're a tall blue, blue eyed, blonde haired guy that you can go into and, and really poke at people's assumptions, um, and have those type of crazy, inappropriate, ignorant conversations that need to be challenged. Um, and if you, and I don't think Ben and Jerry's is, has that audience to even have that conversation. So I, I think there's a place for, you know, our type of brands. I'm very proud of the stances that we took. Personally, I wish we took more aggressive stances. Um, but I, you know, just like a lot of different people make up a community and there's different roles within that community. I feel like we know ours and we know our role and we're very, uh, excited to continue to push people towards having those type of, uh, you know, I, I love the phrase used earlier, brave space. Um, and, you know, in a, in a weird world. Um, so I used to be a former teacher uh, and my principal uh, always talked about creating brave spaces. So that was a decade ago. And I'm, I'm super glad that that phrase is, is being used and, and expanded upon. David, you just touched on uh, the the B word, which in my world over the last year, that to me has been the biggest stop of where we've um, we've been limited in our capacity to create change boards. And I'm curious because we're going into the last question now, right? In terms of where do we need more um, support and emphasis and transformative change? In my world, similar to the work that Michael and Tim and Raj do, we are in a position and and have a responsibility to counsel our clients and counsel organizations on how they can create and affect meaningful, transformative change. We've been doing a lot of that work internally for the last many years, thinking about where white supremacy shows up in our organization and how we disrupt that. We document and we report out on that. And we, we model that with our clients, but it has been fascinating to me that time after time, we get to the highest levels of an organization and they say, you know what, we, we all believe you and we want to move forward in this way, but you know what, our board's not going to go for it. So we're just going to stop here and not take it any further. And I don't know, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear from you all on if that's a stopping power. Do we think we can get, you know, corporate governing boards to take this on in a meaningful and deep inner way, right? That doesn't need to break capitalism, but that needs to ensure that capitalism can work for everyone across the board. So as we're closing out, I'd love to hear from folks as many as I can on what do you think needs to continue to happen or happen at a deeper level if we are really going to see meaningful change on some of the issues that we're talking about today. David. I'll go super quick because I definitely want to make sure that there's enough time for everyone else. Um, uh, We're a benefit corporation. Changing the legal structure of how corporate officers are both evaluated as well as just giving them legal protection so that the fiduciary duty expands into consideration for the environment the impact on the community, as well as your team members, 
uh, is, is huge. That's, it's game changing. Uh, the fact that, you know, we did what we did last year on a monetary value, um, and that I'm not getting sued for my shareholders for it is awesome. Um, and I think, I think all of this is great talk until you actually start changing what executives are either benchmarked on and or compensated for. I think one thing that is a little low-hanging fruit that a lot of corporations can do, and benefit corps, in my view, are leading the way in this, but um, other organizations could do this, is the um, kind of evolution of the CSR, the corporate uh, social responsibility teams that are starting to kind of populate a lot of the S&P 500 companies really to have that be more intentionally integrated throughout the company and not as a department that's checking a few boxes. And I think if if that ethos kind of runs throughout the company rather than this standalone, this silo, just like a DEI kind of team before, um, this is a little bit of a, a, I would say, replication of that and then beefed up even more. But really having that kind of live throughout the entire organization and not a a box checking exercise that, you know, satisfies some of what David's talking about in the fiduciary piece, sure. But if you want to change the culture, it's got to be more than just that department focused on that checklist. And I think benefit corps uh, do that in a much better way. And if that could kind of make its way throughout, that would be good. You know, one of the things that you know we're trying to do at the Business Journal is, um, and we're really struggling with this, is trying to hold, trying to measure, uh, ask companies what they're doing, uh, measure them, and regularly report out on that. Um, so we think by sort of shining the spotlight in that in some way, uh, we'll um, be able to hold business leaders and the community at large accountable to what they have made statements against. So, you know, we're publishing something that, you know, you'll see this week, which is our first diversity index, which just looks at um, self-reported by companies on what they've done in terms of recruiting diverse staffs, boards, C-suites. And it's sort of our first step in just trying to sort of measure things for the community and then remeasure it again a year from now. And we'll continue to add to that over time. Um, I'm struggling with what else to do to sort of, you know, try to continue to sort of keep the pace moving forward. Fred. I think, Alex, that that's actually a really great place to start because I think most people don't know what else to measure other than shareholder value. And this break from the business of business is business, but rather perhaps the business of business is something else other than just shareholder value. Whether you're a B Corp or, to Karen's point, all of us should have a purpose that is not just shareholder value. Um, and, and so it's very, I, I love kind of the fact that it should be individualized to the corporation but you should be measured against that purpose, that uh, something other than just shareholder value. Um, so I, I love that you're publishing that. I would say a report card of sorts for corporations, a la, you know, we all, we're all part of, uh, you know, what is that, the, 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 what is it called? The one that, that measures all the nonprofits and their effectiveness. I can't 
remember the name of it now, but we need a similar charity star. Yes. Guide star. So we need to have a similar sort of report card that, you know, cause I will honestly say there will be companies that the only reason that they will go into this work is because they will be shamed. I, I hate to say that that sounds awful, but it's the truth. So not, I'm not suggesting Alex that you shame uh, all these companies, but they, but you know, if they see a good way of going forward and they see that diversity, equity, inclusion is being reported in some kind of a report card, you know, like book of lists kind of thing, there could be a, a way to sort of, people want to get on lists. I know. Exactly. It's not about shaming them. It's about motivating. Yeah, motivating. Exactly. Shame works a little bit, but yeah. motivate. Yeah, both. <laughs> There's a number of initiatives underway about measuring these things uh, and some that we can share with you later. Um, including how, yeah, B-Lab, there's a group called Policy Link, Just Capital, and um, uh, doing the thing called the Blueprint for Racial Equity. Um, and there's different ways to look at KPIs and other things of this nature. So this is a emerging area, but I think the diversity component is the easiest and simplest thing to not lie about uh, and to do it. But the one thing that I also highly recommend when it comes to measuring this work is it's going to be highly contextual. And that's what's gonna make it really hard for business to understand that it's about people's individual experiences and what might work for my company may be very different for what Elizabeth does. Uh, and that's, that's, that's just the nature of this work. One size does not fit all. If I can add, um, the, the institutions that I serve are public institutions, large endowments and foundations that invest in alternative investments. And what I've seen is growth. We, we've seen tremendous growth there, but we also have a lot of work to do. And what I mean by that is when we're specifically talking about metrics and, and Alex, like you, you trigger something for me, which is the idea of like holding the boards accountable and a lot of institutions, what they've been doing um, as of late, I would even say for the past decade, is look at a manager's composition of their boards, right? And they do ask diversity questions with the intention of hiring certain investment managers that fit a profile for them. And I do think that that ends up helping to at least push the narrative forward because you are captivating diversity as one of the important tiers by which you measure performance by. So something similar to what David said too. Um, and I think what has been resoundingly similar in all of everyone's responses right now is just thinking about like, how do we measure, like, how do we place metrics around this? And I do think what Raj said about it being contextual is extremely important because, and I'll relate this to the Asian experience, which is ten tangential, but I think it's also really important. It's like, how do you categorize this, right? Like the idea that, and we've seen this in the media in particular, especially around education with the Harvard case, and then also what's going on in New York City with Stytown and a lot of these school districts is Asian Americans have been essentially lumped in with the white population. Like, how do you do that when in of itself, the group is in incredibly complex? You know, Raj, you made me think that like black and brown often encompasses the Indian American experience, but then does not include all of the other Asian experience, right? So there's all of these ways by which you can splice the data. And again, I don't have answers, but I'm just thinking out loud here as we think about all the different ways that we can measure an organization and keep each other accountable. And then thinking about the context of where we can actually put real dollars behind the power that often is unfortunately what impacts change and, and can push these conversations forward.
metrics are really important, but so is structural change. And often metrics can make it look like we're making progress when we're really not. So we need to measure both. Um, DEI equity cannot be relegated to an HR issue. It can't be something that your HR team manages. It's got to be a top to bottom framing through everything that we do. I think we have to be really careful and diligent about definitions. We've thrown capitalism around a lot. We throw socialism around a lot. Recent poll I saw 40% of Americans think socialism sounds great. 40% of Americans have no idea what they mean when they're answering that question. They just know that what they have now isn't working. That's not capitalism or socialism. It's just what we have now isn't working. And why is that and how do we define that? Last thing I'll mention is if you look at something like $15 minimum wage, that is an equity issue at its core, but it's defined as do people deserve a wage they can live on or do businesses deserve to not go out of business? That's the framing. That's an awful framing. That means no one wins in at least one of those scenarios. We have to change that whole dialogue. And I think private industry business leaders and nonprofit leaders and folks who run business journals often have the authority to, to reframe these things in a way that we can make progress on them. The very, very last thing I'll say is that companies that are looking for the six-month solution are going to get it wrong. Those companies who say, we're just going to hire three more senior Black people and that's going to solve all our issues, often what you've done is taken away those opportunities for advancement to people in your pipeline who are trying to get those jobs. You need a six-month and a six-year solution and a 60-year systemic change. And if we frame it that way, it reduces the pressure to get it right today, but it also opens up the opportunity that we have to get it right over the long haul. Tim, can I toss to you to wrap us up? Yeah, I don't know if I'm be the right person to wrap up because there's so many really great, meaningful insights um, shared by this entire group. And and honestly, I've learned so much. It's been tremendously rewarding. And I admit, like I I didn't even know what a benefit corporation was, and I feel like silly and ignorant to even say that in the space of working in purpose-driven communications work. And I just looked it up and I was like, wow, this is really good stuff. I, I hope that there's even more conversation around benefit corporations because, you know, it, it has some parameters in terms of how uh, corporations are being measured. Um, so what I'll say is, um, again, we work in a space where we work with Fortune 500 brands and we're working on Asian American communications and outreach. And we've always been kind of mission-driven and mission-purpose. And sometimes we find alignment in some of the brands that we work with, you know, carry in our partnership together with St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, AARP. These are organizations that are very, very civically engaged and civically minded, socially uh, aware. And, and I think there's more work that needs to be done. But the five pillars, I think, of areas of what we're going to be focused on in this space, it relates to education on the history of the Asian American experience. Because quite honestly, I can't say that the average person really knows about our time here in America, dating centuries back to when, you know, we had folks coming over from China to work on, on the railroad. I mean, I just don't think that people really understand our experience. Two, um, we're committed to producing content uh, that includes the accurate portrayal of our community. So, you know, you'll see like in content in mainstream media, like, you know, we're known for being Bruce Lee and martial artists or this subservient goddess that's like kind of mysterious or, you know, we'll be Empire Bling or Crazy Rich. There's so much in between about our community that oftentimes isn't really shared or told. Uh, we also are committed to fostering relationships with folks in the newsroom. So who is actually telling our story? Like, who is of Asian American descent in the newsroom, in the media, actually telling our stories in the community that are really writing about our stories and actually bringing those to light? 
Four is that we want to advocate for uh, representation uh, of our community in all levels of government. We're talking about the highest level of government, you know, to the executive branch, uh, all the way down to local municipal um, government. And then last but not least is training. And I know personally that I have so much more to learn. And in this group, uh, in this room, I feel like I need to connect with all of you more because I think I can learn so much um, from the from the group that you've assembled here, Carrie. So those are just some parting words uh, of some of the things that we're committed to um, moving forward. I thank you so much for this time, for starting this conversation, for pausing from the fast pace of your day to be here with us. I will follow up and share all of the resources that have been talked about today, and we'll see where this goes. I'll, I'll throw out some options if we want to continue this conversation. But for now, thank you and stay well. And with that, we are at the end of season two of Mission Forward. Thank you so much for being with us this season, for all of these amazing conversations that we've had, for the guests that we've had on this show the last couple months. You know, as I think about what has stuck with me since this conversation, you know, the days since this conversation has happened have left me feeling full of hope for the future, but also so deeply full of drive and focus on the work that is ahead. There are so many business leaders reckoning with how to respond to the ongoing crises that COVID has presented, but also how to balance that need for short-term responses. They're thinking about how to set in motion policies and practices that don't just make change for now, but that lead to more systemic change. Here's what we know. When it comes to challenging racism and white supremacy, words alone do not suffice. I hope that you check out the show notes from this episode to access some of the resources that we shared in and after this conversation and learn more about how our team is acting, both in support of the Asian American community and all communities that have been and continue to be targets of racial violence and discrimination. This work is hard work, but it is the most important work. And I so value you listening and being along with us for this journey. Until next episode, Thank you for listening. And as always, if you appreciate the content, let me know. Rate our show or leave us a review. It helps me know that the content is sticking with you. Stay well, be good, and we'll see you next season.